Okay, welcome everybody. Hope everybody is uh, having a good beginning to the week. Um, I was certainly, I'm sure, uh, many of you heard um, about the passing of Rabbi Sachs um, on over Shabbos, which was, you know, really uh, devastating news, um, especially to anybody who learns uh, Tanakh. Anyone learns about the Parsha. Uh, looking for meaningful explanations of Torah in general. Rabbi Sachs was just a, uh, I don't know, maybe the most eloquent spokesperson for the Jewish people maybe in the world. Um, I don't even know if that's a exaggeration. Um, so what we're going to do today is uh, I'm going to share with you, we'll, we'll talk, we're going to learn like we usually learn, but the final idea that we learned this, this, uh, this afternoon will be an idea from Rabbi Sachs. One I think I don't remember if I shared it with you before. I thought that I had, but as I was looking things up, maybe I haven't, which is great. Uh, that's true. Um, and um, and so let's just get started. But our learning, our learning today certainly should be as a chus for for his neshama, and uh, and certainly also I, I'm sure you also heard of David Feinstein, um, also passed away over over just before Shabbos. Um, you know, also a tremendous Torah leader, and uh, you know, Klai still had a. Had a hard last few days, and our learning should be a zechus for their for their neshamos. Um, so let's let's cut right to the chase. A very strange. Uh, I gave you a very strange uh, first source, which is the source at the very end of Chayesara. Chayesara ends at the end of every parsha. At the end of every parsha in the Torah, you look at any chumash, you find a count of the total total number of psukim in in that parsha. And, uh, and it also often gives you a mnemonic, a way to remember what that count is. Um, so here at the end of Parshish Chayesara, it says, Kuf hei psukim, it's 105 psukim long, Yehoyada simon, so the simon is Yehoyada, but the body, which is the same in Gematria. But why am I pointing you to the number of psukim in Parshish Chayesara? The reason I'm pointing it to you, or pointing you to that number, um, is because of the fact that almost the entire Parshas Chayesara, not all 105 psukim, but about 90 of the 105 deal with two topics only. And that is what I put at the top, a wedding and a funeral. Right? They deal with the burial of Sarah and the match of Yitzchak and Rivka. Uh, two stories which are extraordinarily long. Um, and it's a little bit strange. And w- why, you know... It's not just for the purposes of being able to say a nice answer that I'm asking this question. How do we typically find people getting married or having children or, or, or dying in the Torah? Any thoughts? When someone dies in the Torah, what is it typically, how long does it typically take for, them, for the Torah to tell us? It's typically pretty quick. Vayamas, this person, they lived this number of years and they died and they had many children. Finished. Good, goodbye. Throughout Sefer Bracious, more than any other place, we find lots of stories about people who lived long lives and then they passed away. And that, like, it, that, the Torah does it all the time. And this person got married, even if you find it at the end of last week's Parsha. And the last week's Parsha after the Akedah, so we go through all the children of Nachor and how they, you know, who they were and how long they lived and then they died. It, it happens. People in the Torah, they get married, people have children, and people die. It happens a lot. It's part of the cycle of life. Yet, when it comes to the story of the burial of Sarah, and it comes to the story of the match of Yitzchak and Rivka, there are an extraordinary number of psukim. An extraordinary number of psukim. And the question is, why? What is the Torah trying to do 
uh, when it tells us all about um, these two stories. So I want to offer this afternoon uh, two, two approaches to this question. Uh, one, which is going to be more specific to the, to the issue of the burial of Sarah, and then one which I hope will kind of address both at the same time. So to address the first question, I wanted to take you to, um, it's actually a Gemara. Um, so take a look at the Gemara, actually it's a Gemara source number four over here. Everyone see that? Okay, so the Gemara there, it's a Gemara in Kiddushin. It's actually the ve- one of the very first Gemaras in Kiddushin. The Gemaras in Kiddushin talk all about Kiddushin, how to get married. And, uh, and the Gemara gives a number of different approaches, different ways that people can get married. The approach that we know most, right, is the idea of Kiddushin Kesef, that the husband gives his wife, uh, you know, typically we do it as a, a ring, but they give some a type of money to his wife. And in doing so, this affects a marriage. He's not buying his wife, he gives it to her, right? So it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an acquisition, but it is a form of uh, showing that commitment that he hands her kesef. And the Gemara asked the question, kesef minalan. How do I know? Where does this idea come from? That the way for a man and woman to get married one way is through kesef, that the man can give his wife um, a ring, uh, a something, some, some form of money. Where does that come from? And the Gemara gives a very astonishing answer as to where this concept of Kiddushet Kesef comes from. And it answers as follows. Gamar kicha kicha mistei Ephraim. It makes a comparison, right? Very often the Gemara will do what's called make a Gzereshava. You have two psukim, or two words, in two totally different contexts. And the Torah will say, well, it says this word in this place, and this word in that place. What do you see? You see that the same rules apply to both. So what does that mean here? Well, when it comes to stay Ephraim, let's go back. Now, now go back to source number two and three. Source number two is the story of the purchase of the Maras Machpelah. In that story, what happens? It's a very significant back and forth between Ephron and Avraham. Ephron pretends that he's willing to just, you know, don't worry, you can take it, it's not a big deal. Really what he's saying to him is, you're never going to purchase this and this will never belong to you. Don't ever think that you're going to purchase this land and it's going to be yours. And Avram recognizes that, so he decides to pay an extraordinary amount of money, way, way above asking price, in order to get this plot of land for himself. And the Torah tells us in Perak Chaf Gimel, Gimel Gimel He says, listen up. Nasati kesef hasadeh kach mimeni. He says, I'm going to give you the money. I want you to take the money from me and then I'll be able to bury my wife here. And that's exactly what happens. Ephraim responds, okay, I hear you. What's 400 silver coins between you and me? It's no big deal as an extraordinary amount of money. And Avram hears that and he says, great. And what does he give him? He understands he needs to pay. And he pays 400 silver coins to be able to bury his wife there. The language that's used is, I want you to take the money from me. I'm going to give this money to you and you're going to take it from me. Okay? Great. What does it have to do with, with getting married? Presumably nothing. However, if you look in source number three, we find the same language. When a man and woman get married in the Torah, what's it called? The Torah says, right? When a man takes a wife, the language is, the same language of, here. so if you go to the Gemara, now the Gemara says, I'll tell you, how do I know that you can use money as a way of affecting Kiddushin, that a man and woman can get married. 
From here, from this exact story, Mistei Ephron, Ksiv Hacha Ki Kach Ish Isha, says when it comes to getting married, when a man takes his, takes his wife, Uksiv Hasam, Nasati Kesev Hasadeh, Kach Mimeni. Vikicha Ikre Kinyan. So you see that a Kicha is considered a Kinyan. The Gemara has more explanations for this, for that point. But the bottom line is, the Gemara at this stage is using the idea of the uh, acquisition of a field as its best example for the fact that um, a man and woman could get married through the act of kesef, through giving money one to, from the man giving money to his wife. So I'm acting, I, I will throw the question out to you before I give any type of answer. Why in the world would there be a connection between the way, um, the way a transaction happens to purchase a field and the way, or the, the way Avram purchases, purchases the stay Ephron that have anything to do with how we get married? What would you say? And by the way, there's one other connection, which I'll talk about in a second, to how, uh, to the purchase of a field and to getting married, which also takes place actually in our weddings, wedding ceremonies also. What do you think? Any thoughts? There's no wrong answer. You raise your hand. <laughs> you don't have to, you can just talk. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. So I think, um, I think when we talked about, like last year, the year before, about how important it was that he purchased it and that he actually gave money and that it wasn't just a verbal agreement and... You know, because it, it was important to actually say, no, I paid for it. I, there was a transaction that happened to make it like firm and forever. So I assume maybe it's like the same type of thing that when you're um, purchasing a wife, that it would be the same thing. Like you want to make sure there's actual something that is traded hands to prove that it took place. Meaning, meaning it, shows a, it shows a certain sense of seriousness. Yeah. This is real. Like it's not verbal. It's just right. real. Right. To clarify, I want to make it clear. When, when, men, when a man and woman get married, it's not a purchase. But it's a, it's a transaction. You're right. What? Yeah, it's not. No, it's not that. It's not that way. The husband doesn't own the wife, right? I'm just saying, even from a halakhic perspective, even from the most technical halakhic perspective, it just happens. It, that's not how it works. Um, but you're right. It is, but it is a transaction. There's an agreement here that's being made. Absolutely. And if that's true, you're saying by, by giving something tangible, I'm showing that I mean it. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just words. You can't take it back. Like, you can't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't take it back. Good. Any other, any other ideas? I also think, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, just, I never used this before. Um, I also think that the word isn't give, it's take. That it's not, like, a lot of people do think it's like purchasing a wife, but no, they're, they're both equally important here. The wife has to take it. The You can't, I mean, some people buy stuff by just, like, putting the money on the counter, but, like, the money has to be taken, otherwise it's stealing. You have to be both involved as much in both relationships in order for them to both get the goal that you wanted. Okay, so, it, so meaning, Leo, you're arguing that it is transactional in the sense that it's, it's, it's money changing hands. It's that we are, we're, we're, there's an exchange taking place. And both parties have to be in agreement for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Right, it's something that we're, we're agreeing to do together. Okay, excellent. Anything else? I was just going to add to what they both said, that and that's what a contract is. It's an offer and acceptance. So it's like a legal binding contract. Mm-hmm. You offer something, the person accepts it, and that's a contract. Right, and in fact, what, not only do we have the wife takes, right, is, is given that, that ring from her husband, but there's also a contract that we write, right, the contract of Ksuba. Right. It was also a binding contract that, that, was, that is a requirement of the husband, actually, to, to take care of his wife. Um, so, yes, it's definitely part of the same process. Good. Um, 
Excellent. Good. What this is, I do not expect anyone to know this. There's one other thing that we do at a wedding that actually has is the same process that takes place in the acquisition of a field. Anybody know? I do not expect this. What? (laughs) You trade a ring? No. What, Janet? I can't hear you. You're muted. You're muted, Janet. Hold on. Janet, you're muted. Aid him? You need aid him? Now you pick up the object. Okay, okay, the, the uh, lifting of the pen or the handkerchief. Good, that is, that's true. That we do that as part of the showing that the chassan accepts upon himself the responsibility of, of the ksupa. No, something happens under the chuppah. You know that the, husband, the wife walks around the husband seven times? Yeah. So that's how, actually, that's one way to, to acquire a field is to walk around the borders of the of the field you do that a number of times and that's a way of showing your ownership you're like you're like staking your claim to the like, to the property they did that, they did that for Yuriho. they walked around, they walked around seven times time. yes yes so as much as we think oh the husband is giving the ring to the wife the wife is staking her claim on the husband by uh, again i never saw a brother on the post game exactly that way but it's 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 definitely connected i i mean it has to be uh connected which is interesting. Was it weren't marriages? I know it's politically correct to say it was equal and it's man woman, but like originally it was ownership, and I mean a husband's baal, which is a husband, which is an owner, and it's acquiring a wife. And but it's, it's not But it's not. Woman didn't really have much say who she was married. You're exactly to. absolutely absolutely correct. That's so from a sociological perspective in the you know in the days of the Torah. It was certainly, I would not, I would agree with you. It was not an equal, co-equal in that same way from, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, certain, in certain ways. Yeah, women were married off, you know, very young, etc. But it's still not an acquisition. The husband does not own the wife. Um, that's, not, that's not correct. Risk that's not true. the one who they asked her permission before they agreed for her to marry. If yes. They, like, went yes. to get her opinion. Yes. Yes. No, but no, but Jan's saying it's not totally equal. It's it's still correct. It's not totally equal. I mean, the woman doesn't do it. If there's a get, the woman doesn't really do anything other than take. She accept the get. There are areas where she has to accept also. But yes, correct. Yeah, you are right. But the and and correct, and that's not going to be my answer (laughs) to the to the to the reason why we use kesef, uh, kesef kedushin here. But but you're right. But 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 I, I will. My point. The point is still true that it's not an acquisition like a the way you acquire a. Khalilah to make a comparison a car a, a field it's the, the comparison is not just like you acquire a field you acquire a wife that's not correct that's not the comparison it's not really the same thing because it's not it's it's even halakhically the husband does not own the wife it's just not true he, does, he doesn't own the wife um so and there are halakhic ways to explain why that's not correct that she he doesn't he doesn't own her um but the but the question though is so then, so then, if that's true, then why use this example? So I saw something really, really nice. Rabbi Eli Baruch Shulman's Rosh Hashiva Mwayu. And he said, if you, um, if you think about it, what was going on with Avram and Sarah their whole life? Right? So Avram and Sarah's life is, uh, is an ex- extraordinary journey, right? They fight paganism. They start in Rokazdim. They bring men and women to recognize Hashem. They leave their families behind. They go through famine, Sarah's kidnapped, they fight wars, all kinds of things happen. And, they, and maybe the hardest part is how long they have to wait um, to have a child. And now it's over, right? Sarah passes away and their marriage is over. And that same marriage that began, right? Maybe not in their day, but right? Te- 
symbolically through the act of giving money, right? Uh, through a ki kach ishisha. How does it end? So it ends full circle with Avraham one more time taking kesef, right? And making a purchase on behalf of his wife. And that it's the, it's the quintessential example of commitment. A commitment that is a giving that happens with nothing to get in return. Right? A giving that comes from loyalty and that comes simply from the, the journey they've had together, which comes to a close. But as it comes to a close, it's, it's symbolized by, of course, right, it's unquestioned, that he would then pay anything any amount of money in the world, an extraordinary amount of money in order to make sure his wife gets the, is given the respect that she deserves at the end. And so what Rishon wanted to argue was that is that when a couple are getting married, we say to them, you know, do you know what this marriage is really about? It's not about, yes, it's about love and it's about caring for each other, etc. But it's really about the commitment that is found in that, in that moment. Right, the commitment's found in that way. I'm sorry, give me one second. Okay, you're good. Sorry. Um, so the, the point is, you can go in there too. You can go in there. Yeah, you can go sit in the bed. Sorry. One second. But, but basically his argument is that at the moment when a husband and wife are getting married, and there's, you know, you know, all kinds of excitement. He wants to, re- the reminder is Kesef Kiddushin really comes from the Kesef of, of, of burying each other, which is kind of morbid, morbid on the one hand, um, but it's really beautiful because that's the, ultimate incom- that's the ultimate commitment, right? Real love is born out of commitment, which is constant, which is there through every difficult challenge and ends with this, the saddest moment in a certain sense, but really in a certain sense, the most meaningful moment. When, when, you, when you invest to any amount of money, because it makes no difference, there's no money, amount of money you wouldn't pay, right? To make sure that this, that this person is, is taken care of. So he wanted to argue that the idea of kikha kikha miste efron is a, uh, you know, again, yeah, maybe there's a transactional element to it. And maybe, by the way, I don't think it's incorrect to say that it has as a part of it the, you know, sort of that um, seriousness, how serious we take it, the transactional nature in a certain sense, give and take. But, but he wants to argue it comes from this, again, this place of, of, of commitment that's everlasting, that's represented in a, in a sad way, but really in a beautiful way, with the way that we take care of each other, you know, as they say in America, till death do us part, but we really mean it that way. Um, and even to the, the very last moment that we take care of each other. Um, but I want to share with you one other idea, and this is an idea that Rabbi Sachs, um, it's one of my favorite ideas from Rabbi Sachs, actually, and I was surprised to see when I checked my notes that it looked like I'd never shared it with you before, but I, maybe I have, in which case it's a, uh, a reminder, but I, it's, it's one of my favorite, my favorite uh, pieces from him, and I think that it really uh, represents a lot about, maybe, maybe I'm going too far to argue his worldview, but really the way in which I would just, maybe just say personally have been impacted by the... By the um, thought of, of Rabbi Sachs. And it goes, and it goes like this. Um, Avram Avinu is given two promises. Right, what are the two main promises that Avram is given over and over and over again? What would you say? Children. Children and? 
And how, and how many children? How many children? You become a great nation. Yeah, he's going to be the father of a gazillion people, right? He's not going to have a child or some children. He's the Av Hamon Goyim, right? Not, not everyone is given that promise. They're going to be, you know, the father of a great nation. Okay, that's number one. And what else has he promised? Inherit the land. Inherit the land. Good. Sarah dies. And Avram looks at himself. And he's, and he's promised, by the way, each of those things five times or more in the Torah. Where he's promised that he's going to be the leader of a great nation. And he's going to get inherit Eretz Yisrael. And, and, and Sarah passes away. And how much of Eretz Yisrael does Avram own? Nothing. I mean, a little Z- parcel of land. <laughs> none. Zero. He owns oh, none of it. They bought it. Yeah. When Sarah passes away, he owns zero of it. How many children does he have at that point? So he has Yishmael, who's been kicked out of the house. And he has Yitzchak. And what are, and what are the prospects for Yitzchak right now? Is it for future generations at the moment? Nothing. Right? He, he hasn't yet get, yet gotten, he doesn't have any children who have gotten married to say that they can be grandchildren. And he's going to have, you know, a perpetuation of this nation. Forget perpetuation of this family. Forget nation. He has zero. He's given his whole life for God. He's been promised these two promises. And neither of them have come true at all. And he's now... We were talking at a shir uh, a few years ago with you. You were talking about Amuna and how he had to have the ultimate Amuna because... Like, because of what you're saying now. Like, there was... There, he, he has nothing. nothing. He's 137 years old. Right? He left Haran at 75 with, I'm going to make you a great nation. That was 62 years ago. 62 years ago. His wife has now passed away. He has acquired none of the land. And he has one child out of the, kicked out of the house. And one child who's wonderful, but, but he doesn't see any prospects going further. He's an old man already. If you were Avraham, what could you have done? And now your wife, your, your, your beloved wife has now passed away. If you're Avraham, what could you, what could you do at that moment? What would be actually very natural and normal? Well, to lose a moon, I guess. Yeah, I'd, be yeah. Yeah, I'd be angry. I'd be angry. Oh, God. What's, what gives, God? Like, I, I gave up my whole life for you. And, I, and you promised me two things, and neither of them have really gone anywhere. Right? What does Avram do instead? He gets working on each of them. This week's Parsha, Avram takes each of those promises and instead of waiting for God to make them happen, he makes them happen himself. Step one, what does he do? Yes, he buys a burial plot for Sarah, but what is he really doing in effect? He's purchasing the very first piece of land that he would ever own in Eretz Israel. He doesn't wait for God to give it to him. He doesn't say, God, I don't understand. This isn't fair. He gets up and he spends an extraordinary amount of money to buy the very first piece of land in Israel. It was promised to him. It's supposed to come to him. And what does he do? He purchases it himself. He doesn't wait for God. That's step one. And by the way, is it easy for him to get, the, to get that piece of land? It's an extraordinarily difficult back and forth with Ephron and all the people there. And, and, they, and they say they're helping him, but they're not really, they don't really want to help him. Look at all that we've shown him. They say Ephron was, 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 was conning him. He had no interest in selling him the land. And it took Avram a lot of back and forth to make it happen. Good. Promise number one is now on its way. And what happens next? And what happens next? What's the next promise? Avhamon goyim. So what does he need? He needs his son, he needs his son to, to get a shidduch. So what does he do? He wants to find a way for, um, he sends, um, what's his name to go? Eliezer. Yes, he sends it to Eved. 
He sends the Evid on the journey with a lot of money and a lot of persistence and with very specific instructions. I think we spoke last year about the, specifically why not why the Haran and not Canaan and specific instructions how to get there. Why? To make the second one happen. Take a look and look take a look in Rabbi Sachs over here for one second. Says Rabbi Sachs, these are remarkable promises. The land in its length and breadth will be Avram's and his children's as an everlasting possession. Abraham will have as many children as the dust of the earth, the stars of the sky, and the sand of the seashore. He will be the father not of one nation but of many. What though is the reality at the time Sarah dies? Abraham owns no land and has only one son. So what does he do? So he goes out to make these things happen. And when he makes them happen, it takes an extraordinary amount of work. But if, it, but if these two episodes are Avraham bringing the um, promises of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to fruition, now I understand why it takes up 90 of the 105 psukim of this entire parsha. Because it isn't some detail of some person who happened to die. And it isn't some marriage of some people who happened to get married. These are the cornerstones of, of not just the future of the Jewish people, but of the process for the Jewish people moving forward forever. All right, look, at, look back at Rabbi Sachs. These are, these, these are then no minor episodes. They tell a difficult story. Yes, Abraham will have a land. He will have countless children. But these things will not happen soon or suddenly or easily. Nor will they occur without human effort. To the contrary, only the most focused willpower and determination will bring them about. The divine promise is not what it first seemed, a statement that God will act. It is in fact a request, an invitation from God to Abraham and his children that they should act. God will help them. The outcome will be what God said it would be, but not without total commitment from Abraham's family against what will sometimes seem to be insuperable obstacles. A land, Israel, and children, Jewish continuity. The astonishing fact is that today, 4,000 years later, they remain the dominant concerns of Jews throughout the world. The safety and security of Israel as the Jewish home and the future of the Jewish people. Abraham's hopes and fears are ours. As Chazal say, Ma'asa Avos Simon Labanim, right? All the stories that happened to the Avos are really emblematic of the things that will take place and happen to their children. Now, as then, the divine promise does not mean that we can leave the future to God. That idea has no place in the imaginative world of the first book of the Torah. On the contrary, the covenant is God's challenge to us, not ours to God. What an extraordinary thing to say. The meaning of the events of Chayesara is that Abraham realized that God was depending on him. Faith does not mean passivity. It means the courage to act and never be deterred. The future will happen. But it is we, inspired, empowered, given strength by the promise, who must bring it about. When we read these things from Rabbi Sachs, I think for myself personally, it like became like normal to read these types of messages. Um, these are the types of messages that, that Rabbi Sachs brought to the world over and over again. Um, the, the, this balance between faith and un, like undeniable faith, undeterred faith, but also the will to act and bring things to in, into being. I, I don't know if anybody saw the, uh, you probably did, it was going around on WhatsApp, that uh, clip of Rabbi Sachs, the woman asked him why bad things happen to good people. Did you see that clip? Anybody seen it? It's, it's extraordinary. Uh, and basically what he says, and maybe Belina Deramiel will send it 
uh, send it around. But he basically, the woman asked him, you know what? Give me two seconds. I'm going to share it with you right now. I'm going to share it with you right now because it's that good. Hold on one second. Oh, I know why. Hold on one second. I know it'll work. Yeah, well, hold on. Here it is. Beautiful quote. Okay, here we go. Hope this works. Now let me. I think it's gonna let me. Can you see my screen now? Yeah. yeah. Can you hear it? I actually. Yeah. Can you hear it? Okay, listen. I started listen. off as yes. telling you about my parents and it just comes to mind. I remember my father said to us that the last time he saw you, you remembered my mother had asked you a question, why do bad things happen to good people? And you said to my no, father, tell perfect. your wife, Volume's I very still low. don't have an answer for her. I was wondering. Volume's very low. Okay, hold on. Play a few on my phone. Gonna be good right after all that. Try it this way. Um, the reason I wanted to share with you that idea is because I think it. I think it. It's not the same, but it's a very similar approach that Rabbi Sachs has throughout his writings and everything that he brought to the world. This balance, right? This balance of unwavering faith, unwavering faith, and an unwavering faith in humanity at the same time. And I think that that's, that's the point that he's making here, that God makes promises because he wants to see us respond. He wants to see how we'll be there for each other, how we'll be there as a people, how we'll be there in a commitment to him. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't mean that we have, that, that we have any less uh, of a responsibility to believe in his ability at the same exact time. And I think it's an incredible, an incredibly important nuance um, that that we as as Jews uh, need to continue to cultivate that that belief um, that Akash Baruch is in charge of the world, that God runs the world, and at the same time, His existence in the world calls upon us to act in certain ways and to and to bring the values that He's asked us to bring to the world to the world at large. And I think it's a very powerful, very powerful message. So uh, that is, that's, that's the idea is I think, I think Chayesara is, these, these partios are, are just fundamental. They're so fundamental to who we are as a people. In the first Rashi in the Torah asks, why does God just start, just start the Torah with a Chorosh Zelachem, start with the very first mitzvah in the Torah. Why, why start with all this? 
and, uh, and many of the Rishonim have answered the question because this is the Sefer Hayashar. This is the Sefer we learn about not just the mitzvos themselves, we learn the building blocks of mitzvos. We learn the building blocks of Judaism, the building blocks of what it means to be a, a believing person in the world. Um, and once you have that, then you can take mitzvos and apply them in your life. Um, and I think that this example of Chayasara is exactly the same thing. It's just another example. Uh, these are not stories uh, that are just, you know, they are stories, but they're not just stories. And that's why there's so much ink spilled in them. And that's why there's so much elaborated in them. We touched upon one, bit, one fundamental concept within them. But, uh, you know, they're there because they're so fundamental. So uh, that's what I got. Why did you start off with 105 Pesukim? Did that have anything else? The reason I started with 105 is because almost all of them are telling simply these two stories. These two stories that really um, could have been told to be in two Pesukim. And basically, you basically took 105. It's about 90 of which are these two stories, which really could have... It's extraneous in a certain sense. And the point is that they're not extraneous because they're there to teach us these, these, all the back and forth and the challenges that exist in both of these parts, the, the, the purchase of the land and in the, and in the, and in the marriage of the children are, are there to remind us that it's, it's hard, it's arduous, it's difficult, it's, it's a back and forth, it takes a long time, but it's, it's part of who we are, uh, who we're asked to be. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone have a great day. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.